Zach Subridio from Boston Speaks Up. I'm here with the sponsor, Reed. Silicon Valley Bank is a proud sponsor of Boston Speaks Up for more than 35 years. Silicon Valley Bank has helped innovative companies and their investors move bold ideas forward fast. SVB provides targeted financial services and expertise through its offices at 53 State Street in downtown Boston and in Newton and innovation centers around the world. With commercial, international, and private banking services, SVB helps address the unique needs of Boston's innovators. Learn more at svb.com. Zach Servideo here from Boston Speaks Up, and I'm here with Suffolk County District Attorney Rachel Rollins. Hi, Rachel. How are you, Zach? I'm doing wonderful. Um, happy Friday, and, and really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to, to join Boston Speaks Up. Absolutely. Happy Friday back at you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I'm I'm going to do a, um, an, an abridged, a terribly abridged version of... Um, of, of some highlights of your career, just to give listeners a background um, for the few who, who maybe haven't um, haven't um, as much familiarized with you, um, and I think, and then in the in the final sort of pod, podcast and and written article, um, we'll include a link to your full bio. But just going to read through an intro, and then we can flow in a conversation. So Rachel Rollins is the Suffolk County District Attorney the chief law enforcement uh, official for Boston, Chelsea, Revere, and Winthrop. She was elected by a landslide, campaigning on a platform centered on criminal justice system reform. Taking office in January 2019 as Suffolk County's 16th district attorney, Rollins is the first woman to be elected to that position in Suffolk County history and the first woman of color ever to serve as a Massachusetts district attorney. DA Rollins has been consistently outspoken in her pledge to effect meaningful, substantive reform to the criminal legal system, as she prefers to call it. For example, instead of using her limited resources to prosecute low-level misdemeanor charges, which are often symptomatic, not of criminal intent, but of mental illness, substance use disorder, and poverty, DA Rollins seeks to hold them accountable while providing access to services and treatment to address the underlying issues that likely led the individual to offend. This progressive approach is designed to reduce the likelihood that an individual re-offend and improve the safety and well-being of impacted communities. She also led the charge in filing an injunction in federal court to end civil arrests in mass state courthouses to ensure that all community members have equal access to justice through the courts. Prior to seeking elected office, District Attorney Rollins served as a field attorney with the National Labor Relations Board in Boston, safeguarding employees' rights. Beginning in 2007, District Attorney Rollins served as an assistant United States attorney with the U.S. Attorney's Office in Boston, handling cases that included fraud, employment discrimination, sexual violence, child abuse, gun trafficking, narcotics, and public integrity matters. In 2011, she was selected by Governor Deval Patrick's administration as the first person of color to serve as the general counsel of the Massachusetts Department of Transportation and was soon named the first female general counsel of the MBTA. In 2013, she was recruited to become the chief legal counsel of the Massachusetts Port Authority. The list goes on and on, and I'll link to her bio um, in, the, in the final piece. Um, 
DA Rollins, thank you for um, indulging me and listeners while I, while I sort of read through that. But part of the reason, actually, I thought it would be kind of interesting to do that with you is tell me as I read through that, um, what I, you know, what, what I, what, is there anything I missed? Like, what are things about, you know, before we kind of jump into this and I want to get a little into your background and, and, um, you know, you grew up locally and sort of, you know, how, how you sort of evolved into, to the, to the strong you know woman that you are today. Um, but anything jump out at you that you'd, you'd right off the bat love to share with sort of listeners of Boston Speaks Up, sort of the Boston um, innovation community and beyond um, that I missed there? Yeah. I mean, I am always fascinated. I think most people are when they're introduced because it's all the positive things, um, you know, in your life. And I just want, you know, I'm 49. I'm going to be 50 on March 3rd in 2021. Um, I want the listeners there in particular, maybe some of the younger ones um, and maybe some women or uh, people that have felt they might've been overlooked. I've had many failures um, in my life where I was sure I was going to get a position and I didn't, or um, I've stumbled. Um, you know, I haven't been as good as I thought I was. Um, and I have had to work significantly harder um, to regain the trust of, you know, my supervisors or managers or, or a CEO. So I just, you know, we always talk about the good things, but I think failures and uh, stumble um, are what actually show character and what ultimately um, help you learn. Well, well, well said. And um, how fitting that, you know, we don't need to celebrate it yet. So, you know, be 49 for as long as you possibly can, but, but uh, you're actually going to be episode 50. 4010. Is it okay if I call myself 4010? 4010. There you go. <laughs> you can be 4010. Uh, but this is it's kind of a, a fit. I was saying, I was, I was talking to some folks on your team, what a fitting sort of crescendo um, for, for Boston speaks up. This is going to be episode 50 for the podcast. And um, you're someone that I, I've been looking forward to, connecting with for, for, um, for a while. Cause the last couple of years has sort of just been building up, um, a lot of connections with people sort of whether they're in, um, you know, Boston public schools or then the innovation economy or their artists, their entrepreneurs, their social good, sort of social justice warriors, their people of color creating new platforms and new businesses to kind of, um, improve the diversity, equity and inclusion in Boston. Um, and, and a lot of, um, you know, a lot of the, things that I've discovered um, have sort of um, led me to believe that there's, there's a great hope um, that, that there's a very many leaders sort of emerging in Boston that, that are really um, looking to, to really uh, hyper accelerate like a progressive agenda. And I think you're right up, right up there at the, the top of that list. Um, so really, you know, and, and appreciate like, you know, you have to have humility uh, and, and, and I completely hear you going through struggle and failing is, is, is perhaps the, it's they're the toughest things to deal with, but, but the challenges in life are what, what sort of give us the calluses we need to, um, to sort of propel forward. So actually on that note, how's life during a, a pandemic going? You, you know, you're, you got your, how are you and your girls? I know you have, you you have a dog, uh, Cassius. Is he, is, <laughs> I do. Yeah. The whole crew. Um, so I have a daughter who is 16 and is a rising junior at Buckingham Brown and Nichols school. And then I think, you know, Zach, I'm the guardian of two of my nieces who are 11 and seven. They are Mm -hmm. rising sixth graders 
and second graders. And okay. one of them is in the Cambridge public school system. One of them is in the Boston public school system. And then my daughter is in the independent school league. So what's really amazing to me is I've seen, you know, there's a case study happening within my home about just the disparities between public and private schools and between different communities, right? Cambridge public schools and Boston public schools um, and, and the sort of resources uh, that the children are getting um, in, in each of those distinct school systems, you know, it's hard. Uh, I am a, um, obviously I'm the district attorney of Suffolk County, but I'm also a mom and a guardian of, you know, an auntie is what I am yeah. to Victoria and Mia, who of course still have parents and moms and dads, but that are struggling with various, um, things to try to get to be the best parents that they are. And my hope is ultimately, um, Mia and Victoria will be, you know, reunited or, uh, reunified with their parents. But until that point, I, you know, happily step up here. Um, it's been hard to juggle a full-time job. You know, um, crime does not stop Zach, even right. in a global pandemic. You know, we have unfortunately seen, in fact, not only does it not stop, um, non-fatal and, um, fatal shootings have increased during this global pandemic. Uh, so, you know, I'm somebody though with means and I am somebody who, um, is able to thank God, right. Afford my rent right now and be able to have people help me. Um, I have a good family structure, uh, with parents that will come over and assist, uh, with my nieces and daughter. Um, what is happening with people that are essential workers who are putting themselves at risk every day to keep us safe, working at supermarkets and food um, distribution centers and in transportation or sanitation or in hospitals? They have children, right? Yeah. When we look back at the fact that, think about the kids that are, 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 are um, English learners, right? Have English as a second language. How are they learning right now? Yeah. Think about the children with IEP. How are they learning right now? These parents, we aren't equipped to handle um, the, the, the many, many needs of, of our children. I hope coming out of this global pandemic, people recognize how important teachers are. Um, I hope coming out of this global pandemic, people recognize who um, you know, essential workers are, of course, our police and first responders no, and fire we're not saying they aren't, but I think we are expanding who we see as essential. And yeah. oftentimes it's poor people, um, working class people and black and brown people that are keeping us alive. We need to make sure they get a living wage. We need to make sure that if they get sick working, um, being essential, that we get them workers' compensation, right? And we need to make sure that they have hazard pay, right? Mm -hmm. Or you know, all the things that they deserve. So we're trying hard in the Rollins household. Cassius actually um, spends much more time with uh, the director of the Boston ROCA program, Carl, who is um, fell in love with my dog and is sort of, we are um, co-parenting Cassius, yes. I will say. Cassius is helping on the other side with um, ROCA clients and um, helping them get on the path to um, positive 
outcomes in their life. So I still see him, but not nearly as much because Cassius is out saving the world uh, with Roca right now. Oh, that's beautiful. My, um, I had to ask about Cassius. We're a big dog family here at the Superdio Hustle. My wife works at the Northeast Animal Shelter with one of our best friends. And um, what's been interesting about the pandemic is there's been no short, there's actually just been a, a crazy increase in people um, looking to adopt that, uh, dogs and cats. So the, the shelter's you know, the ability once things calmed a little bit to go and rescue dogs from all around the country um, and get them to so many um, folks in Massachusetts that were kind of you know, found themselves like reinventing their careers from home and, and, uh, looking for some four-legged companionship. Um, there's been no, been no shortage of it. Isn't it? And you know what I love about animals? They don't complain. They're always happy to see you. Um, Cassius was there for me. Uh, I think, you know, a little bit about my background where back on in June of 2016, I was diagnosed with breast cancer and I am a, survivor now so that this has a happy ending. Um, and you know, they're right after being diagnosed, I got him and he literally loved and snuggled me back to life. Right. He just bulldogs are like the cutest, most adorable little perfect thing. Um, because he believes he's such a bigger dog, right? Like, even though he's only 25 pounds, he marches around. He's like a, a little, a little sort of Italian male bodybuilder, right? He's really <laughs> big at the front with some teeny back Sounds legs, like a couple but, of my uncles. Yeah. <laughs> but he's, he's just delicious. Um, and that little munchkin is going to have a place in my heart for the rest of my life because yeah. he was there every second, like just loving me up as I got better. Yeah. That's, um, it was, it's something actually I wanted to ask you about was, I mean, that was shortly after you finished that program, at Harvard Business School, right? The, the management leadership program. And, and you were ready to, you had already had all these accomplishments and then you go through this HBS program and you're ready to go kick the world's ass. And then you got to go kick cancer's ass for like 18 months. Um, what did that, yeah, what, what was it like? I mean, what, what sort of transformation did, did, did that kind of thrust, thrust you through? It was, it was definitely a defining moment, right, for me in that, um, you know, you described it perfectly. I had had such great fortune in working um, under exceptional leaders, you know, like Secretary Rich Davey at the Department of Transportation, who allowed me to be the first general counsel of both the T and MassDOT at the same time. Um, Governor Patrick, who was kind enough to appoint me to the Judicial Nominating Commission, um, Tom Glenn, who's the CEO of Massport. I had all of these amazing leaders that had um, given me wonderful opportunities to learn from them um, in state government and uh, then was sent off to Harvard Business School uh, to learn about change management. And you're right. I graduated and thought, um, oh, my God. I am, I want to change the world. And then, you know, a regular mammogram resulted in, um, you know, we got to take another one and then we got a biopsy. And then the call that said, you know, you have, um, stage zero in some areas, stage one in others, breast cancer. Uh, and you know, since you've already sworn, I will tell you the truth about this story is I remember the doctor telling me we have to amputate one of your breasts 
and then we'll do the rest. And I remember just taking a breath and saying, um, I want you to cut both of these off and I want pornography quality breasts. Like that's <laughs> going to be the gift to myself. Um, I want them facing upwards and backwards and we are going to fix this. Um, and you know, this is something where I choose my life over, um, you know, a body part. And, but it was really, really hard, you know, yeah. uh, to, to make that decision, to have to have a conversation with my daughter, um, then goodness, 12, uh, to say when she asked, are you going to die? You know, I certainly hope not, but I'm never going to lie to you about that. The letter I wrote Zach the night before I went in for my double mastectomy to my daughter, uh, with fear that, you know, what if I don't make it out of this? Um, there are much stronger and better women and men that have died of breast cancer, um, than me. And, you know, it, it is nothing to do with my will or, or me being um, more worthy of life than any of the people that this cancer has stolen from us. So it was incredibly humbling. Um, it was, you know, uh, 18 to 24 months of my life that was focused exclusively on getting better and doing everything my doctors told me to do. But how fortunate are we that I live in Massachusetts, right? That yeah. I'm in Boston, that I have access to exceptional health care, that I, you know, through knowing wonderful people like Tom Glenn, you know, who used to be at Partners, and have access to speak to people to say, can I get another, you know, a, a, another opinion on this? Um, I just, it's so humbling to me, Zach, to remember that there are people who have to suffer through this and are terrified that they can't afford the the treatment they need, right, to yeah. to be well and to live. So this, um, you know, I I got to rest and take care of myself for 18 to 24 months. And my daughter, the, the beautiful end of this is that my daughter got to see me lying on my couch for almost two years asking, mommy, are you going to be okay? Are you going to, are we going to be okay? Are you going to make it through this? Are you going to be alive? To then seeing me stand up one day and say, sweetie, I'm running for office. And her understanding that at, you know, 47, almost 48 years old for the first time in my life saying, this is what we're going to do. And this is how we're going to win. And my daughter started ninth grade at BBNN and they have this thing called bivouac where they send the kids out in the middle of the woods and they, all the ninth graders sort of bond uh, for, I think a 10 day period, no phones, nothing else. Well, when I won September 4th, she was at bivouac. And I called the school and said, you need to get her a phone. And um, when she got on the phone, I was like, hey, pay. And she said, you did it. You did it, didn't you? Yeah. And I said, yeah, we did it. And she was like, and I said, all right, I'll let you go. And she's like, no, no, no. Tell me everything that's going on. It's so yeah. crazy. here. I've been on the phone. But it was, it's this moment where I want her to know she's capable of doing anything she puts her mind to. Um, yeah. And so are my nieces. That's the, I mean, that, the, what a bond with your daughter too. I mean, it's just to, to go, like you, you guys went through that and came out stronger on the other side. I imagine too, like from with some, you know, friends and family who've, who've gone through, um, have like battled and, and come out, um, healthy on the other side of battling cancer. Like 
it, it feels like a superpower and also feels like, wow, I, I really am going to spend my life on things that fucking matter. Like, oh, you know, yeah. swear, appro- appropriate time to swear. Like, you know what? Like things that the bullshit, like if I need to, t- I'll take on bu- any bullshit in any direction if it's purposeful and it makes me happy. And if it doesn't make me happy, screw it. Um, and so I, and I imagine, and I, I see like, I feel very, like I moved back from Boston after, you know, I grew up in Methuen. My wife grew up in Lawrence. We lived out in LA for a few years. We moved back like as like a citizen of the state of Massachusetts, like seeing you district attorney Rollins, like speak up, like whether it's, you know, about folks in, in, in prison with COVID outbreaks and for, you know, low level misdemeanors and like make and being prudent about getting, you know, early, you know, releasing the right people out of prison to try to be, you know, you know, smart with that population of act they're, they're still citizens. Right. And, and speaking up about, you know, the importance of like modifying and reforming policing so that like there could be that like less, less, you know, of a warrior mentality from, from police to citizens and more of a guardian mentality from police to citizens. Like I see all these things and I'm so proud to be in the state. Like you, you make me feel very proud. Um, and so I just want, you know, I want to say that. And I want to say that on behalf of like many people that I, that I know, like my, you know, one of my good friends is a lawyer down in DC who, we grew up together in Methuen. He's like, you know, he and his wife works for the Department of Justice, like for the better part of the last year, you know, they've been prepping me for like, oh, you eventually need to talk to District Attorney Rollins. And in the last few months, like the way that you've been just continuing to step up, um, I was on, and shout out to Justin Lafredo because I, I was on the phone with him like three times this week. He was like prepping me like for, for this interview. But um, but I'm just I, I want to just take an opportunity to sort of to share that. And I think you're um, a beautiful like representation of, you know, a, a, a strong woman of color, um, you know, from, you know, from two, you know, parents who sounds like love, you know, lo- love each other and, and, and we're an interracial couple, like, like that came of it, you know, in Boston that, and, and you had this sort of, um, this, and you faced like, you know, tremendous challenges, but have been and you, the star lacrosse player, like, um, you know, one of the things, you know, like I, I, I read through like everything that you've kind of, and, and I'm like, oh, wow, it makes sense that she's making these, you know, she's, you know, bold and confidently, um, you know, challenging the status quo. Um, I can just tell you as, as, you know, the, you know, as an older millennial here, um, that's kind of, you know, got a good network of like, I would say woke millennials, we fucking <laughs> love it. So keep it up. Um, and, yeah. So, so, so just thanks for the little monologue there, but I, I wanted to kind of give a little bit, of, I, I don't want to talk to, you know, to, too much, but, but, you know, I think that it's, in, you know, one thing that I'd love to kind of go backwards a little bit in time, like, I'd love to get to know like your parents a little bit, like, you know, talk, like talk a bit about like your upbringing and, 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 oh, you know, you know, and, and getting into sports and just like having that, you know, that kind of competitive spirit and that support around you. Um, you know, I, I love, I love to share with the world, like a little bit more of like, of the, of, the, of that side of, um, of, you know, the, the, you know, the young woman that, that is blossomed into this amazing leader of, of the Commonwealth. Yeah. So my parents are amazing. Um, I like to say if there were a thousand people or even a hundred people in a room and I gave you a thousand dollars and said, pick the two people looking at them that you would think 
would never be together, but just celebrated 50 years of marriage. Um, it is John and Esther Splane. And so my dad is second generation Irish American. Um, family is originally from Mayo, Ireland. Mm-hmm. Um, and a trip to Ireland last year, my first trip to Ireland, I got to meet a relative there, which was just so profoundly moving and amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad is a Vietnam War veteran. He enlisted in the Navy to serve this country, um, came back and uh, met my mother, who is first generation. Her, both of her parents are from Barbados. My okay. mom is the oldest of 11 children. Um, my dad, you know, grew up in um housing projects in Brookline and South Boston and has family in West Roxbury and Roslindale. And, uh, but fell in love with my mom and his family disowned him at first. Um, and then like most things change is very hard. Um, we ended up having a really wonderful relationship with both of my grandparents, uh, my paternal grandparents before each of them died. But growing up, we, we, uh, they started in Boston. So I was born in Boston and then, um, moved, uh, when I was very young to Cambridge because back in the, you know, 69, 70, John was not nearly as kind of welcoming and, uh, I believe we still have work to do here, but there was a very different racial makeup and, um, welcoming kind of culture in Boston back in the late 60s, early 70s. And so we grew up in Cambridge in Mm -hmm. a wonderfully multicultural neighborhood, many, many international uh, students, uh, many, many multicultural families, um, biracial children. Um, So, you know, I had I had a really awesome childhood. I'm the oldest of five. you know, so I think the sort of bossiness that I have comes from being an older <laughs> child, right? And thinking, of course, that, you know, I can I can make decisions for all of us. Um, my parents taught me very early that, you know, they were going to do everything for us to get a great education. They sacrificed everything. Four of the five of us went to Buckingham, Brown, and Nichols School. One of my siblings is severely dyslexic and ended up going to the Carroll School in Lincoln. Um, but while all of our friends had, you know, nicer cars and summer houses, my parents sacrificed everything for us to get a great education. And they told me, you know, Rachel, you will go to college, but we are yeah. not paying you because we have four other little people after you. So I was fortunate enough to um, be a pretty good um, lacrosse player and um, was we had won a national championship, uh, was able to secure a full-time scholarship to go to UMass Amherst. And um, after my freshman year, the team was cut and, you know, grew up in Cambridge, didn't know any lawyers or judges, certainly understood fairness as the oldest of five. And me and a few women from the tennis and volleyball teams who were also cut, we all had winning seasons. Um, Our men's football team had not won a game in at least a few years and had 75 full scholarships, none cut. We uh, threatened a Title IX lawsuit and got our teams reinstated. So that is the sort of thread, right, of like this kind of multicultural, interesting background. 
one of the things I'm most proud of is virtually every team I've ever played on in sports. And I played three sports in high school uh, and then um, walked on to the women's basketball team at UMass too to stay in shape because I was uh, nice. Of course you did. <laughs> yeah. Engineering major, which that did not last long, but um, I have been voted the captain of. And so I think what that says in particular in an independent school where there was not much diversity, yes, usually captains are the better athletes, but if you are a complete and raging asshole and a good athlete, nobody's going to vote for you to be the captain. You have to be somebody that also is um, a team builder, a collaborator, somebody who makes people better, who inspires and who um, is willing to take the heat when things uh, get tense, right? Or there's a crisis of some sort. So I think those skills, you know, of growing up multicultural, I like to say I'm fluent in white Irish male, which has made me, you know, uh, very, very lucky in the role of what I play now in Boston, uh, because my dad is not only white and Irish, but a veteran, right? And, um, former member of law enforcement in the sense that he was a corrections officer um, at a a prison. Um, One of my uncles was a state trooper for decades, right? I have literally every male on my father's side has served this country um, and many of them in foreign wars. So there is just a lot of lived experience I have um, that has been helpful uh, in this new role. And then honestly, Zach, I, you know, as I grew up, when I went away to college, um, some of my brothers, I have two brothers and two sisters, unfortunately started touching the criminal legal system, right? So even though I was raised with an incredibly strong and healthy respect for law enforcement and veterans, um, and I still have that deep and strong respect for both, um, I also have a lived experience where you know, there have been positive encounters with law enforcement and not positive encounters with law enforcement. So all of that comes to work with me every single day. Um, you know, and, and again, you know, my resume, I've been a federal prosecutor at the U.S. Attorney's Office. I have literally sat in the same courtroom that I prosecuted people in as an assistant United States attorney that one of my brothers was sentenced to three years in by a judge I used to appear before constantly, right? So I have walked into the Moakley Courthouse as an AUSA and as the family member of a defendant, and they were very different feelings for me. And I am somebody who knows everyone there. So imagine what it feels like when you don't know a single person in that building, right? Your loved one just committed or is alleged to have committed a crime, and you are you know, wondering what floor it's on and nobody's helping you. Add to that, maybe English isn't your first language, right? The the court system, the legal system is very threatening. It is not intuitive. Um, there is so much power that we have as prosecutors. And all of my lived experience reminds me of that every day and sort of guides me with respect to this, you know, justice and equity and inclusion um, and assistance model that we try to utilize now under my administration. Yeah, that's so. There's a lot of interesting points there. One of the things 
Thank you for sharing. Thank you for sharing all that. The theme, there's these interesting little themes that pop up when you start talking to community leaders over a course of a couple of years, like I have been. And one interesting thing that I've, that is now I'm now hitting the trend alert button is just on how multicultural historically Cambridge has been and what a good place it's been for people of color to have sort of um, come of age. Like I just talked to Paris Chandler. Um, She's in her late twenties. She's the founder of Black Tech Pipeline, which um, which is a you know helps organize and the the community of of people of color that are interested in sort of um, you know connecting in technology, working in technology, and kind of like fixing some of the diversity, equity, and inclusion sort of gaps that exist um, in the job market in Boston. Um, and she talks about having you know she grew up. Um, her she's she's half black half puerto rican grew up with a big puerto rican family in cambridge and and just like is still there to this day um and it's changed a lot um but historically sort of very multicultural like she almost didn't experience race unless she was like on the fringes or outside of cambridge um or or like you know didn't experience like oh the color of my skin might be interpreted different ways if i go to go outside of cambridge and so it's it's interesting to um, to hear that, I'm, and I'm I'm kind of curious to double click on that for a second. Like, she was saying that you know because she's still in Cambridge. She's like, yeah, she's like, it's actually almost less multicultural now um, than it once mm-hmm. was. And she's like, it's it's you know, she's like, I you know, there's a bit my family's here, but then all the other you know, black and brown families that we used to see around, like they've kind of you know dispersed further away from the city and. Um, I know this is not necessarily uh, something that you may be tackle in your role, um, but but certainly, you know, and I'd like to talk a little bit about like the meetings you've been organizing with um, law enforcement sort of um, leaders in the Commonwealth. Um, do, do you see like the access and pathways to opportunity um, in a lot of ways can help mitigate problems down the line for underrepresented people? Something I'm particularly fascinated in. And what I mean specifically is like, you know, just, just giving more access to, you know, the most vibrant sort of job, you know, job economies that exist, which dom, you know, are dominantly like in and around Boston. Um, do you feel like there's, you know, ha- having been born and raised in Boston, uh, do you feel like the, which way is the sort of multicultural pendulum swinging? Um, like if they're not all on Cambridge, if, if, if people of color aren't all on Cambridge anymore, like, where are they? Like, are, they, are, are folks moving further, further away? Um, and is that, and, and, or are they not? And if they are, is that good or bad for the city? And, and what, you know, how does that impact, um, you know, how does that impact like just the community? Yeah. I mean, I think we're seeing, you know, I, I chose to move to Roxbury um, when I became DA, uh, but, you know, for me, it's, it's a lot of gentrification, right? Like, yeah we have communities that are unable to um, afford to live where they have lived, um, you know, for generations and whether that's uh, a house that they own um, or whether that is in, you know, an apartment or some subsidized uh, living situation. Yeah. I mean, it it is tough. Like I think Cambridge was far more diverse. Um, I'm still, my parents still live there. Um, They, purchased the, um, they, they purchased 
the house that my my mother um, was raised in, right? So um, oh, cool. they bought my grandparents' home before my grandparents, my maternal grandparents moved down to Cape Cod. And then they purchased my uh, paternal grandparents' home on the Cape after they died. So we, you know, now have multiple generations of us sort of growing up or living in these two homes that my my mother's parents and my father's parents each uh, lived in for quite some time. But, you know, I, I also know rent control um, changed Cambridge quite a bit, right? And so, yeah. um, again, I do think, though, Cambridge still has a, a, a very diverse um, group of students that end up going to Cambridge Ringe and Latin, right? And I certainly, um, my daughter's father, my ex-husband, had a much more diverse um, high school experience, for example, in Cambridge, at Cambridge Ringe and Latin, than I did at BNN. Yeah. Um, but you're right. I mean, I, I think access and opportunities are all um, wonderful things, right? It's part of why we, I chose to send my daughter back to BNN. Is you know, there are people. One of my classmates was a Rhodes Scholar, right? Another one of my classmates left school in 1989 as a to join the Boston Ballet Company, which at the time is like Kobe Bryant, right? Or Kevin Garnett yeah. skipping college and going, you know, directly to the MBA. That's how yeah. wonderful uh, a, a ballerina Jennifer Gelfand was, right? So, you know, but again, and I'm not saying there aren't ballerinas and Rhodes Scholars at Cambridge Ringe and Latin, but, you know, I, I had a really diverse group of people I got to grow up with, but BBNN also taught me I am never uncomfortable a multicultural background and having gone to school at BBNN, there's not a single room I'm ever uncomfortable walking into or fearful of, you know, there's not, you know, I think we all suffer a little bit from imposter syndrome, you know, even people who pretend that they don't, oh, um, yeah. but I never feel ever like I yeah. can't handle um, this because, you know, this is what I was raised with, right? Yeah. Uh, this is from fourth grade to 12th grade everything I experienced, um, at BBNM. That's interesting. Um, I, I kind of wanted to, to kind of segue that into some, some po like sort of some policy stuff, um, sort of your, you know, I, I read through your, your, your memo shortly after you took office in 2019. Um, I wanted to, and I wanted to throw out, like, I guess, generally speaking, I'd love to talk about like certain things you focused on from a policy perspective and why, like, you know, you, like you addressed pretty, you know, pretty prominently, like cash bail, for example. Um, and that, that's something I'd love to kind of understand, like how you're trying to kind of bring more equity to, uh, you know, the sort of a, a legal system that at, at times, can, you know, oftentimes can sort of benefit those just with more money um, and just more means. Um, and I guess kind of adjacent to that, you know, one of the things that Boston speaks up has been uncovering our initiatives like project entrepreneur, which, um, which is, which is actually at Boston college right now. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Larry Gennari and Gennari Aronson law, law firm on 128. I actually interviewed Larry Gennari because he, he's got this beautiful way about him where he's, you know, sort of, um, through law kind of like, you know, 
creating opportunities for um, folks with criminal records and, and returning citizens to become entrepreneurs. And he actually, and, and so to your point about like BBNN and like, there's, there's these great, my thing with like these great institutions like Harvard, MIT, like, you know, could, you know, my, my buddy, Justin Lafredo, I mentioned went the Phillips Academy and over like, yeah, like if you can get your kids in these schools, like that's great. Um, but then like, if you can somehow kind of like have these schools kind of go into the communities that they're nearby, like if Phillips Andover could go into Lawrence and like do programs at Lawrence public library, like tech for hood that I've discovered, which doesn't yet do a program with Phillips Academy. Like, I feel like there's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, potential, you know, value there, but, but project entrepreneur is a, a course now at Boston college where, um, if you have a criminal record, if you're a returning citizen, you come into the course, it's basically a startup boot camp because it's really hard, as you know, for returning citizens to get jobs. And one of the ways to get around getting a job is creating a job and creating a business. And so I like that about um, Project Entrepreneur. And then on and Tr- Project Entrepreneur has kind of had some really good success stories under its belt and now actually has launched Second Chance Ventures, which is sort of, you know, it's what's sort of the innovation economy, sort of venture capital investing in um, investing in entrepreneurs with criminal records. And I'm just curious, I know, A, like, I think that might be an interesting, you know, types of programs to kind of create connectivity with, with the district attorney's office and sort of B, just like curious your general thoughts about that type of, those types of frameworks, programs in and around greater Boston, um, and then I, I think we can dovetail on the policy from there, but I kind of just wanted to share with you some of the things I've learned, some observations and, and, and things that seems like if they're, if they grow in scale could have like a real tremendously positive impact on, on the community. A hundred percent. And going back to Cambridge, right? Why don't we have throughout every level of Cambridge public school, an MIT or a Harvard student exactly. mentoring kids, right? Like this yeah. is, there's a part of me where, with Boston, for example, you know, or even Cambridge, whoever I, Cambridge has a weak mayor, right? And there's a, the, really the city manager is Oz, right? He's yeah. running everything in the city and the mayor's like cutting ribbons and saying hello to people. Meanwhile, the city manager is, you know, making everything happen. But for me, you know, all of these universities in Boston with Mayor Walsh that, that are, have pilot, you know, payment in lieu of taxes that haven't paid any of them yet, there should be, if our schools, if we have failing schools or, or underperforming schools, why right. aren't we mandating that Northeastern have some program with all of the schools in Roxbury? If their footprint is expanding extensively into Roxbury, which it is, right, and they're trying to gobble up and buy up new things, we should have BU, we should have BC, the, the little nugget of it that touches Brighton or Alston up there. Yeah. Um, all of these hundreds, Wentworth, like whatever the universities are, um, that are are helping our students. And there's a mandatory piece in order for them to do it. So I love hearing, you know, you put those dots together, right? I'll give you another yeah. real example where I was so frustrated. And this is the problem with government is so Marty Walsh did a great job and got all the students in Boston Public Schools Chromebooks, right? Mm-hmm. When we went to virtual schooling, I think the mayor got, you know, 30,000 or so Chromebooks and you just had to go and pick them up for the students. Well, the Globe recently said there are like 20% of students that have never logged on to their Chromebook. Now, maybe that's because 
you know, the student, whatever. There, there could be yeah. any number of reasons, right? Maybe their parents are both working um, essential workers, right? Maybe yeah. they don't have Wi-Fi, right? Maybe they do have Wi-Fi, but there are so many people in their house that the signal is low. But when we think about that, um, we also heard, for example, that DCF, the Department of Children and Families, stopped sending social workers into people's houses when the global pandemic hit and we went into an, a state of emergency. So mm-hmm. my brain, the way it works, Zach, is why isn't DCF yeah. demanding that or asking the city of Boston for access to the 80% of students, right, that yeah. did log in? Every school knows my one of my my nieces are in DCF custody technically because I'm their guardian and you know whatever. But right. the school knows that my nieces are in DCF custody. The teachers know that they are. So why wouldn't they say, let's allow this student, um, act, let's allow DCF access into this parent's house through um, a Zoom meeting? Right. And no, I'm not saying DCF is going to make me walk around and video and show them my entire house. But if there are extreme cases of abuse, if there are extreme cases of neglect and if they're missing meetings that they have with DCF, these are all data points that are important for DCF to make a decision. Because remember, we went dark on March 11th. Right. Mm -hmm. And many of the young people that their respite was school because they aren't getting fed or they're being abused or harmed at home, these children, um, at least there are mandated reporters at their school. Like, I want systems to work with each other. I want people to think creatively about things. And the last example I'll give, Zach, and and I love the fact of, like, Phillips Andover going in Florence or Phillips Exeter in New Hampshire, is there some, you know, sort of, um, rural or poor neighborhood, um, irrespective of, of race of that neighborhood, that Phillips Exeter could give to, or a St. Yeah. Paul in Rhode Island, right? Yep. Or, a, you know, is, is BBNN making the kids, there's a, there's a community service requirement to graduate, are, you know, they could easily say, how are you helping the world get better, right? Yeah. Like, you know, and what does that look like? But the last thing I'll say is my daughter is a hurdler um, and so she sometimes, or used to always run at, um, Reggie, uh, Lewis center, right. Sure. In, um, in Boston. And I was picking up a couple hurdles from Reggie Lewis and I pulled around the back of, um, of the Reggie Lewis center and the back, the side of Madison park high school is right in front of me. There is a huge, like woodworking sort of carpentry wing of Madison that has a tech element to it, right? Mm -hmm. They're supposed to be, you know, my hope is teaching kids how to um, be mechanics, right? Or be um, carpenters, right? Or just even if there was some training mechanism by where you don't have to be a licensed electrician or a licensed plumber, but if you can be a Jack or a Jill of all trades, we are failing our students, right? There are some students that, you know, college is not what they want to do. And I used to think, you know, yeah. myopically when I was younger, oh, you know, this person wants to be a plumber, I'm going to college. Well, who's the idiot, right? That individual that left yeah. high school and became a plumber has five houses right now, multiple yeah. employees, and you know, I just paid off my student loans, you know, in my 
that we, we need to be better at getting youth and people opportunities and certainly the ones that are serving a sentence, right? We yeah. have we know where they are. Why aren't we doing more with them? Why aren't we getting them the counseling they need, getting them, you know, training and job skills, working on what their re-entry plan is going to be. If Zach, if you drop me off on a corner and start talking to me about my re-entry plan, it's too late. You've already yeah. dropped me off. I don't have anywhere to go. I don't have a job. We know where they are. Why aren't six, nine, 12 months before they leave? Why aren't we making sure that we know what the plan is going to be or sitting with them to help them? Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. A couple other things come to mind. Like one is I'm on the Dearborn STEM Academy, like advisory committee. Are you familiar with like the Dearborn School in Roxbury? Yeah. And like they're, you know, they've kind of reinvented themselves and upgraded to like the Dearborn STEM Academy and Boston Plan for Excellence has kind of helped, you know, That's helped co-manage the school. Gorgeous, right? Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah, been there. Yeah, because I've been there pre-COVID. I would go for the advisory meetings like in person. And we've had Marty Fuller from Boston Plan for Excellence who works at Dearborn STEM Academy like on the podcast. Um, But what they're they're doing is they're engaging like the private sector. But the private sector can also be like trade workers. Like it doesn't have like like we're moving into a tech-driven labor market, generally speaking, but there's like a lot of hard skills outside of tech that are important too. And, and it was funny, like I'm the, I'm the tech guy, like I'm, I'm really, you know, I'm on the bleeding edge of sort of tech and sort of media, but I was, I'm always the one raising my hand, like, Hey, like, well, let's not like, we go on these long tangents about like, getting students ready and, and, and with coding, you know, coding skills and ready to get, you know, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of college talk. And I'm always like, well, what about for like, let's not forget for, for all the folks that can't, you know, don't, you know, college isn't a pathway because they're like helping right now earn for their families at 15, 16 years old. So like, never mind going and taking on the expense of college at 18. So you have to create new pathways. Um, One of the great things about COVID, not that there are many great things about COVID, there aren't, but is now in this sort of virtual world that we have all moved to where we are zooming into meetings. All of the fears that people have regarding returning citizens are removed, right? Yeah. So if we have something where even, you know, tech assistance, right, or other things where before we would have them come into the home and help me do, you know, the nerd squad or whatever it's called, right? Like help me for, with fix my computer. If it's something where I have a background where you can't see where I'm actually sitting and somebody is on the screen walking me through the things I need to change, you know, haven't yeah. we removed all of the, you know, precursory or, or pretextual maybe reasons why people say, oh, we'd love to hire Rachel with her felony, but we can't just because, you know, our, you know, our clients will be really nervous and whatever else. So you know, I think let's look at positives that come out of sometimes, you know, crises or bad situations. Agreed. Yeah. I think one of the, yeah. And like the, the other, the other, there's this program I just discovered, Neil Jacobs. I don't know if you know the name, but he was like outside counsel for the Celtics for like 30 years and he has, he's retired and he, he, he did a beautiful thing in retirement and created three point foundation about 250 kids um, from underrepresented communities in Boston are a part of it. It's a lot of K through eight schools that like don't have like dance programs and basketball programs. And yeah, I just spoke to them. Yeah. Nice. And, and the, and it's great because the, the, um, 
you know, they're partnered with UMass Boston. And so to your point, like there's all these resources from, so, so it's just like, it's interesting to see like a 501c3 or private sector kind of tap into university to in, impact community. But what I think needs to happen more is like more of the Dearborn STEM academies where like, you know, the, the you know, the, you know, the public, you know, public, you know, um, leaders kind of tap into, you know, the private sector, tap into the universities and just un- unleash, you know, the one in four people that are at universities in Boston, like on all of these issues. Um, I know we only have a couple of minutes left. I did, you know, I thought it was really, um, you had some provocative sort of back and forth with um, just, just around like the, the, you know, the, the murder of George Floyd and, and the needing the, the need for police reform. And I know we don't have a ton of time to discuss this, um, to the extent you want to discuss a little bit of the back and forth with the Boston police department, fine. But I think what's more important is what you're doing now, which is like mm-hmm. taking put, you know, beh- behind the very important, um, words that you put out, um, actually bringing people together across and trying to bridge communication across the aisle. So do you want to speak to that briefly? So for me, I was very vocal about the fact that I was appreciative that the commissioner had made a statement denouncing Derek Chauvin and his murderous behavior. And the commissioner and I together, as members of NOBLE, the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Officers, had drafted a statement along with Sheriff Tompkins and other leaders, uh, Black leaders in law enforcement in Massachusetts. But I said out loud, the commissioner is not the rank and file of the Boston Police Department. When, you know, when I live in Roxbury, it's not the commissioner that's driving around at 2.30 in the morning seeing what's going on. The commissioner isn't in the Youth Violence Task Force, otherwise known as the gang unit. The commissioner isn't on the homicide detective team. Um, he's the commissioner. He's the face of this organization, just like I'm the face of the DA's office. I'm, yes, you see me at these crime scenes, but I'm not the one, you know, helping the police gather evidence. I'm not the one, right. you know at arguing the arraignment the next day. So I made that distinction and I still hold firm that the Boston Police Patrolman's Association has never denounced Derek Chauvin and his behavior. And I don't need an apology. I just need them to understand that your silence is deafening and it it does not help me solve crime. Mm-hmm. So when people conflate a Derek Chauvin with a Boston police officer, they now have every right to do that because the Boston Police Patrolman's Association hasn't stood up and said, what happened there, we don't agree with. And They haven't delineated said, between the two. They haven't delineated between the two or said, you know, I mean, what the hell are you actually ever going to speak out on if Derek Chauvin isn't the thing you're going to speak out on, right? right? So, one. And number two, this is why in Suffolk County, where we have a far more diverse grand jury and a far more diverse trial jury where, you know, poor communities and certain communities of color don't trust the police and think that they lie. This is, you know, dating back to March 3rd, 1991, when the Rodney King tape came out and white people were shocked at what they saw. Many poor communities and black and brown communities were not at all surprised. We knew that was happening all the time. Nobody had a tape of it before, number one. Number Next time it happened was the O.J. Simpson verdict, where almost to the letter, black and white reactions were the polar opposite, right? 
And so that's what we're seeing now. Um, but what I also did, Zach, was I wrote a letter to all of my chief commissioners and colonels. So the Colonel of State Police, Boston Police Commissioner Gross, uh, Transit Police um, Chief Green, as well as Winthrop, Chelsea, and Revere uh, Chiefs, and said, I want us to have a meeting in person, and we are going to have a hard and real discussion about race, policing, and the Black community. And we had our first meeting that was scheduled for about an hour and went for almost two. And we just had our second meeting. And Great. we do not agree on everything, but we are committed to having hard conversations with each other and um, moving forward on the things that we do agree on and speaking in a unified voice. That's beautiful. And I know we're, we're over time. Thank you for sharing that. I, I, I would just want you to know the Boston Speaks platform platform is always here for you. So as you kind of advance that agenda and those that those those couple meetings you have pile up to, you know, eight, nine, 10 meetings and you just keep advancing like the, the, the progressive reform sort of to the, you know, the criminal legal system and just even more broadly, that's like really doing a lot of really important community work for Boston. Um, thank you for that. And also just we'll have to connect again in the future. And um, I'd, be, I'd be grateful to get a chance to, uh, I would have loved to have done this in person. Um, I'd love to, to meet at, at some point and maybe make yeah, some connections. No, of course. Yeah. And yeah. we will. Yeah. Well, you have a wonderful rest of your day and um, really you appreciate the time district attorney Rollins. This has been a pleasure. Too. 